Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Raul Perez, Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Laverne and the author of The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy. The book was published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Hi, Raul. How are you today? Hey, Pete. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, you know, doing good, staying, trying to stay cool here in, uh, you know, hot Southern California. Well, we wish you all the best with that, but uh, I'm over here in New Orleans and it's it's not much better, unfortunately. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your, your background and your training? Yeah, so I'm a sociologist here at the University of Laverne. I've been here for a few years. I was a sociologist at the University of Denver for a few years. Um, got my PhD at uh, University of California, Irvine, um, you know, with a background in uh, race and ethnicity, um, cultural sociology. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, like th- those two fields were the fields that really helped me think through uh, this project that we'll be talking about today. Great, great. And uh, your your study is one of racist humor, which is both repugnant and omnipresent. I'm curious if you could tell us more about what drew you to this project and, and why you think it's been so neglected. Yeah, so I mean, I think everybody has maybe like a personal story for why they study what they study. <clears throat> I mean, for me, I was, I think I was always drawn to humor itself, you know, even as a as a child. Um, and, and maybe even to like, you know, to dark humor, in a sense, like humor that's, you know, kind of naughty humor, that's like, kind of more in your face humor that like, you know, you wouldn't tell about around like, you know, mom and dad at the kitchen table, you know, because you're going to get a smack sure, across yeah. the face. <laughs> um, so, so I, I was kind of drawn to it, you know, just uh, because of its, I guess, taboo nature, or th- this, this kind of other quality of it. You know, but as I, you know, started going to college and thinking kind of more deeply about social issues, social inequalities, um, like once again, I was drawn to this kind of humor, but in a different way, like trying to understand how this humor sort of works in society. What does it do for social relations, for, you know, social bonding, for friendships? <clears throat> but one of the things that I really noticed, especially when I was uh, an undergraduate student at the University of California, uh, you know, living in the dorm rooms with, you know, students you know, from different backgrounds, uh, you know, from different parts of the country, and then noticing how jokes could be used simultaneously to kind of bring people together, like, oh, these are the folks I can tell, you know, these these pretty sort of awful jokes with, and, you know, we, we share a similar kind of humor. Um, and and because we share that humor, we can kind of be friends and we can shoot the shit. And can I say shit on here? I don't know if I can. I think you can. Yeah, okay. All, all right. <laughs> uh, I, I forget the protocols for the for the different uh, uh, you know formats. Um, you know, but you know, then you go out to the uh, to the cafeteria. You hang out with these folks. You know, these are folks that become your friends. You know, uh, in this new context. But then I also saw how how jokes could actually create barriers like you know like a joke that somebody 
didn't really appreciate or a joke that somebody felt was offensive, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, all of a sudden the, 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 the beginnings of what would have been a friendship uh, were kind of cut short. And it's like, wait a minute, I, I don't find that funny. I don't think that's funny. Um, and, and so I, I kind of was, you know, not in a sort of academic sense yet, but the fact that I was at an academic institution, I was beginning to pay attention to the way that jokes could do that. And of course, you know, growing up, noticing that on the school playground, you know, with, you know, kids and, you know, grade school and high school, like you kind of notice that sometimes, uh, those dynamics sometimes, but you don't really consciously study them closely, right? And so now being at the at an academic institution, I was like, wait a minute, uh, I'm going to sort of, you know, pay closer attention to this kind of problem and dynamic. And then noticing that in the everyday context of just you know living in the dorms and stuff like that, um, but then also paying close attention to geopolitical sort of context. Um, and when I was an undergraduate student there, there was a big sort of global sort of um, issue concerning a joke with the, uh, you know, the publication of the Danish, you know, Muslim um, cartoons or, you know, anti-Muslim cartoons, really. These were cartoons that were sort of ridiculing the Prophet, Prophet Muhammad as a terrorist, um, but also in a sense and by extension ridiculing Islam and ridiculing Muslims, right? And, and, and so I began to sort of pay closer attention to that, right? So how do jokes here in my immediate social context that I witness in the everyday, how do jokes bring people together, but also create these sort of barriers and divides, and then witnessing that in the sort of the global arena, how that's happening. And so then, you know, I did what the college, you know, student, I guess is supposed to do. I, you know, I, I went to the library, I went, you know, I started looking for books, I started, I, I just became interested and and I guess immersed myself in, in just this 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 topic, this issue, and trying to sort of uh, trying to have a, just a better answer for myself. Like, why is this happening? Um, and then you know was able to turn it into an undergraduate research thesis. And then I was encouraged to go to graduate school. And you know, for me, I'm a first generation, you know, Chicano from LA. So these things were not like, you know. Uh, possibilities, I guess, for a lot of the folks, you know, where I come from. So this opportunity and this curiosity, I guess, turned into an opportunity that I've been pursuing for, for, you know, over a decade now. Thank you. Um, I'm hoping we can take that a step further. So what was out there? What had already been done? Um, and what did you notice about the, the extant literature on the topic? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think we were kind of briefly talking about this a little bit earlier. Um, I mean, one of the things that I noticed was one, a lot of this literature that I kept encountering was, was being written in the late 1980s, 90s. And I, you know, I was an undergraduate there, you know, in the early 2000s. So a lot of the key literature was, yeah, from like, you know, a decade or so prior. And a lot of the literature was really focusing on almost a kind of celebration of, of, of humor in a sense that, you know, what does humor do to, <clears throat> what does humor do to sort of help us fight against, you know, um, you know, uh, isolation, alienation, anxiety, depression, right? So what were the, the personal good qualities of humor? Like how does humor make us feel good, right? So some of the psychology literature I noticed would emphasize that, um, you know, some of the social science literature you know, uh, focusing especially on geopolitical issues, really focused on, you know, humor as subversive, humor as a sort of tool for democracy, humor as a way that, you know, you can challenge, you know, um, 
you know, undemocratic regimes and in humor as this kind of progressive democratic force that you know you know that really highlights the sort of the the, the good and it really emphasized the good sort of um you know social social psychological you know and even sort of political force that that humor uh can wield in a society so in a sense the the punchline of the humor literature was humor is good right humor is socially good and for me it was like well yeah this is great this is interesting but it just didn't resonate as much and it didn't explain the world that I was witnessing at the time, right? Like humor, I'm like, well, humor is not fully good because here I'm seeing, you know, people's not only feelings are being hurt, but it's like, it's creating this kind of divide and, you know, in my own sort of living arrangement. Um, I, you know, also noticed again at the geopolitical level, I'm like, what does this kind of humor do? You know, this anti-Muslim humor, what does it do in a context where the United States had invaded, you know, Iraq, you know, there was a war in the Middle East uh, here. And, and of course, a lot of the political discourse at the time that was very sort of, you know, uh, racist towards, you know, uh, Middle Easterners, Arabs and Muslims was a dehumanizing discourse, right? Um, you know, the racial slurs that were used in political discourse, you know, the, 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 and, the, and the way that that discourse, right, that these are our enemies, so we're going to dehumanize them. So it facilitates, you know, uh, you know, the logic of invasion and the stuff like that, you know, stuff that I was beginning to sort of, you know, read and in undergraduate courses on race and ethnicity and political sort of, you know, sociology and stuff like that. All of a sudden, I began to make these connections. I'm like, wait a minute. On the one hand, this literature on humor says humor is this progressive sort of force, but here I'm seeing, you know, uh, the, the the people who are being invaded in this context um, are also the objects of ridicule, right? And that ridicule is kind of what I saw was it's kind of serving to 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 justify the the sort of uh, the the uh, the military intervention in this region, right? And then the people fleeing from those regions as refugees, you know, who end up in European countries or end up, you know, here in the United States, um, you know, they're the objects of ridicule, right? So for me, it's like, wait a minute, how is humor then a progressive democratic force where here the people who are fleeing because their countries are being bombed um, are the objects of, you know, what I call in the book, you know, amused racial contempt, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're, ha we're having fun at their expense. Um, and of course, this serves geopolitical sort of um, interest too, because, you know, when the peoples who, in this case, Muslims are, you know, being targeted with this kind of humor, and then they respond, hey, we don't think this is funny, then there's like a doubling down on this idea of the sense of humor as a progressive force being equated with Western democracy and civilization. It's like, ah, you see, these people with this religion and this sort of extreme ideology can't even take a joke, right? They can't even laugh at themselves or they can't take, they, 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 they can't tolerate us laughing at them. You see, this is how uncivilized they are as a people. So, I mean, I began to kind of sort of formulate these thoughts, you know, over the course of trying to understand what was happening. But even as an early undergrad, noticing these things, I'm like, wait a minute, this literature is telling me that humor is just good, that sometimes it's, you know, it does these other things, but here I'm seeing in real time, these other sort of, you know, negative qualities that humor is capable of producing um, as well. And I didn't see the literature really paying close attention to that, right? And then that's when 
you know, some of my advisors were like, well, maybe, maybe you're the person to do that, you know? And I'm like, Oh, maybe, maybe I am, you know? So, um, so that's kind of how it started and how, and how I got the ball rolling on, on the topic. And can you tell us how this book developed? I mean, I'm curious, how do you even tackle a subject like racist humor, right? It's in locker room conversations. It's in memes. Yeah. People are talking about it on the, on the subway or on the bus. Right. I mean, how does a sociologist kind of crack this phenomenon that's so pervasive? Yeah, that, that's that's always a tricky part because part of what, you know, I mean, I think every discipline, but sociology in particular, it's like, what's your methodology? What's your data? Like, you know, don't just tell us that this is happening. You got to show us, right? Um, and so my my earlier work was, was trying to sort of uh, make this argument by looking at the arena of, of entertainment in particular, like, okay, so how has racist humor operated in entertainment? Um, and in a sense, that was a little easier to do because, especially on the historical front, because, you know, the United States is littered with racist humor, you know, uh, when you just look at the genre of blackface minstrelsy itself, right? It was, it was, a, it was a form of entertainment. It was a form of humor, right? It, the, the draw was, you know, we're, we're ridiculing, you know, this racialized group of people. Um, and we think it's hilarious because, you know, this is what we think they are or who they are. Um and so, you know, so already in U.S. history, you can see racist humor as a kind of as a as a cultural phenomenon that, you know, that is really reflecting what I've called um, what I call in the book and in other works, you know, the national sense of humor. Right. If we talk about nations and cultures having developing a culture or a sense of humor, you know, you know I argue that if you look at the United States and its formation, you know, only a few decades after it becomes a country, this genre uh, of of humor, blackface minstrelsy, a racist humor is really the first homegrown American genre of entertainment in the United States, and so I call it. It's the national sense of humor. It 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 develops as as a cultural identity of the United States, and that cultural identity is reflecting the structural reality of the United States: plantation economy, white supremacy, racial chattel slavery. Um, and so on the historical front, it was like okay. I think I have a solid foundation to make the case that racist humor is something we should look at and consider more, more fully. And then the challenge was, how do I look at that in the contemporary context? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so looking at the historical stuff, I'm like the natural extension then would be to look at sort of comedy and entertainment in the modern sort of period or in the post-civil rights period. Um, and so I, I did some of that work and, and really trying to think through how, how racist humor and racist jokes operate um, uh, there and have written some, some about that. Um, and then, you know, as I was like, you know, a grad student and trying to keep up with the literature, I began to notice that other folks were starting to pay attention to this to this phenomenon, too. Uh, you know, one of the books that that and one of the scholars that I really um, started to look to who was doing some of this work, you know, around the same time I was, but was kind of, you know, a little bit ahead of me was a British sociologist, Simon Weaver. He had mm -hmm. published a, mm -hmm. he had published a book, you know, The Rhetoric of Racist Ridicule. Um, and, you know, he he had also. Or the rhetoric, sorry, the rhetoric of racist humor, uh, but he was also operating from some of the, you know, especially the British sociologists. I think we're doing a better job at looking at the more negative sides of humor. So you had Weaver, but before Weaver, you had some other folks. One of the influential scholars was another British sociologist by the name of uh, Michael Billig, and he wrote a book called Laughter and Ridicule, 
uh, and he had also written an article uh, for a journal called uh, Discourse in Society, uh, was um, blanking on the title of the article, but it was on, I think, on the racist jokes of the KKK or something like that. And, and that was one of the articles that I read early on that kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, shit, like there's there really is a way you can begin to analyze racist humor in the more contemporary context. Uh, and then beyond just the arena of, you know, popular culture or entertainment. Um and so for the book, then I kind of aimed to do that. I said, okay, for you know for my earlier work, I was really invested in looking at racist humor in the arena of entertainment, in the, in the historical context, and in the more recent context. But then I started to think, wait a minute, I have to look at racist humor in other contexts beyond entertainment. How does it work there? And so the far right became sort of you know an arena to look at more closely because folks like Billig and other folks had begun to do that work. And then I said, wait a minute. So the far right, in a sense kind of the easier and more obvious case to look for racist humor. Obviously, they would think racist humor is funny or entertaining. And then I said, what other arenas do, can we see? Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, 2014 happens. You know, you're, you're seeing, you know, the, the routine shooting of unarmed Black men by police. Um, and then you see that this is crystallizing into protests around the country. Um, and, and one of those key uh, uh, you know, events happens in um, in uh, the city of, of Ferguson, Missouri, uh, to the point where you know it, it the 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 protest you know uh, uh, was deemed a uh, you know an, essentially a sort of uh, uh, a, a security sort of issue in the state. You know, a state of emergency, right, for the for the city uh, of of Ferguson, um, and and so then that demanded like you know, uh, intervention from the federal government, the Department of Justice. And so I was I was following the, 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 the case as much as I could. And then I was really waiting for that DOJ report to drop because I was like already, I suspected there was going to be some evidence in there connecting police, patterns of police violence to what police officers are saying based on some of the other research I'd already been doing. And sure enough, when when it when it comes out, it's like, you know, the the DOJ and Eric Holder is like, yeah, there's a part of what is uh what we're finding in the culture of the Ferguson PD is a culture of what they call, you know, you know, racial dehumanization. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a culture of racial dehumanization is happening here. And that culture is uh, being sort of shared and it's being bolstered by racist jokes and racist humor and you know that 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 uh, officers and court officials and city officials are sharing like you know on the job you know on their official city of ferguson email accounts so i said okay there's something here then and then i was like if this is happening in ferguson it must be happening in police departments all across the country um and so you know so then i began to think okay so this is happening and then i, I guess i began to think about it in terms of scales right like uh, at, at sort of you know at the micro scale okay this is happening in far right circles at the meso scale this is happening within sort of organizations like law enforcement and then i was like okay is this happening at a more aggregate scale you know at the national level you know was was the other idea and that's where i found you know okay racist humor in the political arena uh was was pretty prominent especially during um uh, Obama's tenure as president, especially during Obama's first um, election cycle in, in 2008. And so, you know, for the book itself, I was like, okay, I think I have then here so th- these three interesting cases where I can, you know, examine them, you know, uh, 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 each of these as, you know, specific cases uh, of how this is happening and how they're connected. And then the, the trickier part was, 
how can I develop a kind of theoretical lens for this? Like, like what does this mean that this humor is happening? Um, and that's where some of the 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 other sort of challenge was trying to give a theoretical weight to to the book and 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 try to make an argument that th- these are not just kind of offhand anecdotal kind of incidents in the way that the humor literature that I was reading and invested in would often um, analyze or, or refer to these incidents like kind of these are you know isolated incidents these are sort of you know uh, this these are not normal right um, and 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 for me it's like no 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 wait a minute it's, that's the wrong take on this like we, we really need to reframe our thinking uh, on this and and that's why you know in the book I kind of take a bit of a swipe at some of the, you know, scholars who are like really trying to sort of uh, 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 make the argument that, that, that humor is, is kind of an unproblematic, an, an unproblematic phenomenon. It's merely, you know, a form of entertainment. It's merely, you know, it's merely good. And I was saying, no, no, it's, it's, it's not, we have to pay closer attention to these other dynamics too. Yeah, this is, this is so important. And I was thinking, you know, during the Trump era, it seemed that there were, um, scholars of humor based in the United States who were emphasizing that laughter was resistance, that humor was a strategy that could be used against Trump. But at the same time, humor was fundamental to what Trump was doing, right? Um, That doesn't mean he was a good comedian, right? That's another issue. Yeah. But I mean, even thinking about that time when he was mocking the journalist with disabilities, thinking about the whole bad hombres, the nasty woman, yeah. This is humor. This yeah. might not be humor we like, but yeah. it's humor. Yeah. Why do yeah. you think scholars of humor have been so reticent, even negligent, to address something that was so ubiquitous? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a great question. And, and I think on the one hand, I think we can sort of point the finger at scholars, you know, at academia. I mean, academia, I think, already has a reputation as kind of a liberal institution. So... Um, so, so in a sense, I think the the scholarship was one that wanted to focus on humor more on the sort of the the sort of sunny side of humor, like the more sort of let's focus on what's good about it, right? In this in this vein of I think that reflects the culture of the society more broadly, right? This sort of emphasis on positivity, positive thinking, self help, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. and, and I'm not the first to say that. I mean, Billig makes that point in his book Laughter and Ridicule that you know it really it's it's in the last few decades and really he's pointing to like you know during the era of kind of neoliberal sort of capitalism beginning to develop in the 1980s and, and afterwards uh, other folks too i mean the the late uh, uh writer and 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 uh sociologist barbara ironreich you know who just passed away recently mm-hmm. you know, she wrote she wrote a book also you know very critical of you know this this idea of of, of positive thinking and, you know, and and both her and, and Billy make make the argument that, you know, this is overemphasis on positivity and positive thinking, on building positive selves and, and focusing on positive outcomes. You know, both both make the argument that this is really emerging during a period of, um, you know, massive layoffs, of deindustrialization, of the restructuring of global capital, of you know austerity, economic insecurity, you know, and and all that you know to you know to the individual psyche and self. I mean, you get fired. I mean, you're going to feel 
like shit, you're going to be depressed. You know, what? how are you going to make ends meet? And so this moment of, of economic insecurity and economic sort of uh, destabilization that's really impacting, you know, working and middle class people and professionals and so forth, it's, it's creating a lot of insecurity. So, you know, so they argue that there then is a sort of overemphasis on trying to carve out the sort of you know, uh, a sort of more positive, you know, worldview or outlook and a sort of cultural disposition in this moment that says, hey, it's not all bad. Things are going to get better. Hey, let's look at this as an opportunity. It's an opportunity to do something different, to do something new. And, you know, let's let's move forward and let's not dwell on, you know, these kind of the shit economic outcomes that, you know, that that are going to that are going to harm you uh, uh, and, you know, might make your life much more difficult. You know, let's. Um, Let's just just change our thinking and our framework on it, and 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 I think that 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 um, that take um, really I think is a, is a good one to to sort of think through, right? Because um, the other thing that I've that I found in, the, in in some of the human literature was, you know, historically that you know um, there's been a more critical take on humor and not really just overemphasizing the positive aspects of humor, right? I mean, if we go back to ancient philosophers, I mean, they viewed humor with skepticism. You know, folks like Plato and these guys, they're like, well, humor is kind of, you know, it's interesting. It brings people together. But, you know, but but, but what happens when, you know, when, when the masses use humor at the elite? Right. What happens when the masses, you know, are making fun of, you know, of, of these sort of people in higher status? Well, that's not really good because then that creates, you know, social instability. You know, the people in power sort of, you know, uh, uh, might not take too kindly to this. And, you know, so, so it creates conflict. Right. So this humor is creating conflict. Um and, you know, so, so, you know, the ancient philosophers viewed it with more skepticism. Um, and even during the era of sort of the, you know, the, the enlightenment, right. Or leading to the era of the enlightenment, you know, you know, it's some, some historians and, and other humor scholars were pointing to the fact that this idea of, of humor as merely a, a sort of social good really doesn't resonate with the, even within European society, the fact that humor was often used as a form of abuse, Right. It's like, you know, the, the, the humor that was popular, you know, even during the era of, of the Renaissance um, was the humor at the disabled, the humor at sort of the poor, the humor at the people who were dispossessed, the, you know, the humor at the people that really had no power. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the humor really in these in, in a feudal context was was moderated by those in power. Right. I mean, for instance, in, in the in, in feudal in the feudal era. Uh, within Europe, you know, a lot of these kingdoms often had court jesters. Mm-hmm. The, the court jester, well, who's the court jester? Well, this is the appointed person, you know, by people in power who can use humor so far as, you know, you know, the, the people in power, the king or the aristocracy doesn't feel like they're crossing that line beyond where they be, think it's acceptable. And that line is like, you know, don't cut it too close against us in power and make us look like fools and buffoons. Your job is to be the buffoon. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let you slide in some ways, but, you know, you go too far and, you know, it's off with your head or it's to, <laughs> right, to, right. The, to the dungeons or whatever, right? Yeah. So, so, so humor in, in that sense was kind of a more of a conservative force, right? It, it was it was regulated, right? It was it was regulated in that context. 
Um, and then, of course, the the sort of Renaissance thinkers and sort of humanitarian thinking during the period. It's like, hey, well, you know, we really need to change our sort of understanding of what humor is, what it can be used for. Look at it, it's used in all these negative qualities. It's it's used and abused by people in power. And so you begin to have this development of this idea that you know, how can humor be used as a social sort of good? How can we use humor positively? How can we use humor to bring us together, you know, as human beings and, you know, uh, humanity, what we share in common. And this is all great, right? It's, it's a new th- way of thinking about humor and like trying to emphasize how can it be used for good, not just in the f- in forms of abuse. But of course, some of the criticisms of, you know, this kind of, you know, uh, uh, liberalism and liberal thinking you know, also, you know, they get some scrutiny by scholars who, who look more closely at, at liberalism, you know, itself, you know, and the fact that, for instance, the ideas of democracy are also coming about during this period, right? Democracy, freedom, and so forth. But these ideas of democracy are emerging at the same time that you have this era of colonialism, mm. of empire, you know, imperial expansion, you know, um, domination, enslavement, right? And so, so these ideas are, are coexisting. And in a sense, this idea of let's change sort of our tune on humor, let's focus on, uh, on humor as a sort of social good, you know, how humor is connected to freedom of expression, these kinds of things. I mean, these all sound great, just like the idea of democracy. But these ideas and, and these sort of ideologies were not intended for, for, for all of humanity, right? They were intended for a very sort of narrow sense of humanity, right? So these ideas of democracy are overlapping with colonialism, but they're also overlapping with racist science and racist ideologies about who counts as real, the real human, who are the humans, who are the civilized, you know, who are the savage, who are so. Um, so in that sense, then this idea of the sense of humor as squarely a sort of progressive and social good and social force has also been used and weaponized, you know, by those in power or by those societies that have more power and wield more power over other societies, like I said earlier, right? So when when humor is used by Western, you know, sort of uh, uh, cartoonists against, you know, Muslims and the Muslim world and Arabs, you know, they're it's kind of poking, it's, it's trying to poke, you know, a, a fun at this, at this uncivilized, you know, sort of group who can't take a joke, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you want to be, demonstrate how, you know, how, how you are a sort of civilized society, you should be able to tolerate ridicule at your group, uh, even if that ridicule is also accompanied by, you know, destroying your society, you know, through through bombs that were dropping, you know, on airplanes, you know, over your villages and towns. So, so, so in that sense, I think you know, th- there's a lot more thinking, more critical thinking that I think the humor literature and humor scholars uh, need to do and have needed to do. But, but again, like th- there's been this overemphasis on the sort of positive, sunny side of it, um, because it it confirms that we're a great society. We're a great mm-hmm. civilization. We're a civilization society that can tolerate this kind of discourse, um, and you know, it's it's only these these other illiberal, you know, societies that don't have the capacity to do that. And of course, that's inflected with sort of, with 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 racist and sort of colonial undertones there. So along those lines, let's let's talk about the title of your book. Uh, many listeners will be familiar with the Souls of Black Folks, a collection of writings by W. E. B. Du Bois. But you're drawing from The Souls of White Folks, which was an essay he published a few years later. 
Can you tell me some more about it and why your study of racist humor brought you back to Du Bois in particular? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Du Bois is, is very, you know, sort of influential with, within, you know, the discipline of sociology in particular, um, and especially, you know, more recently. I mean, in, in, in a sense, Du Bois, um, as a scholar who was critical of racism, empire, white supremacy, um, you know, capitalism, um, especially in the early 20th century, especially during the Cold War period, it was like, you know, uh, he was essentially shut out of academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a sociologist Alden, Alden Morris over at Northwestern wrote a book called The Scholar Denied a few years ago, where he's really chronicling the fact that the discipline of sociology and academia essentially just shut out Du Bois. It's like he was not really supposed to be considered a serious scholar. Um, and, and it's more recently, right, the new kind of newer generation of, of, of scholars that are, that are revisiting Du Bois and, and paying close attention to what he said um, what he wrote and and what he thought about these issues that have not have not gone away, and so f- for Du Bois then, uh, and how I connected to the book is, I mean, the book is in a sense. I think I'm trying to do a few things. I'm trying to look at and critique this kind of, like I said, the kind of more normative way in which humor is thought about, uh, but also in in the way that I was thinking about humor um, as uh, connected to issues of race and racism. You know, a lot of the the literature on on race and racism and racial inequality tends to focus on, in a sense, the victims of racism. It tends mm-hmm. to focus on peoples of color. It tends to focus on, you know, on on the peoples who are more sort of readily racialized, or or the peoples who we think are the only peoples who are racialized. And so, in the book, I said, okay, I'm looking at racist humor. But I'm not just looking at the people who are at the expense of racist humor. I want to understand where the racist humor comes from. Where does it come from? Who's perpetuating it and why? And so then Du Bois became a sort of figure to look back to, on the one hand, because of the fact that he wrote this essay uh, on the souls of white folk, uh, an essay that was one of the first that was really trying to unpack and critique the sort of the the limits of whiteness, right? And what whiteness is to begin with, right? Whiteness as a social construct, as a political construct. Um, and in a, in a sense, that's kind of what I'm trying to do in the book here, right? Where, where you know, the idea of, 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 of whiteness, of white supremacy, of white nationalism, these ideas are getting a lot of sort of uh, you know, uh, legitimacy in a sense, especially during the, the presidency of Trump. Um, and so, and so here that I'm trying to connect the history of racism, the history of white supremacy, how it continues into today, and how that is produced through through humor, right? Um, as a critique of, you know, of, of all of these sort of sort of issues that, that that we've been discussing, and so and so Du Bois' essay, "The Souls of White Folk," became a really a really um, crucial one, uh, especially because what Du Bois aiming to do here is kind of show the contradictions of whiteness, show the contradictions of white supremacy, uh, and in the essay, right, he, he's really uh, this is, essay was written in 1920. You know, Du Bois is kind of he's kind of lobbying a challenge to this idea of white supremacy or this idea that all white folks are somehow you know, by, by, by nature of being white on the same team, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, wait a minute, how is it that this idea of whiteness and white supremacy implies that not only that white folks are at the very top of the racial pecking order, but that they're on the same team? He says, that doesn't make any sense. Because if you look at this, the, the state of, of white civilization 
today, this is in 1920, he's like, they're engaging in warfare against each other, right? This is in the context of World War I, right? So they're, you know, so you have, you know, white societies invading other white societies. Um, and part of the critique that, that Du Bois is making is saying, like, look at the, the logic of colonialism has come full circle. And now you have, you know, white Western Euro European societies trying to colonize each other, right? They're trying to outcompete each other. Um, and he says, so that's one of the limits of whiteness and white supremacy itself. You know, white people are now sort of, you know, trying to try to compete with each other and fight each other and invade each other over who's who's the top of, you know, of the food chain, even within white society. And then he's also making a class critique of white whiteness and white supremacy. He says, look at you have white folks um, who are lower class, working class white folks, and you have rich elite white folks. So he says there is another barrier within whiteness itself, right? So you have, uh, so you have these fractions within whiteness and white society. He says that really just don't um, don't lend themselves to this ideology of white supremacy, you know, white nationalism as as sort of solid foundations for how to structure you know your your societies um and so in a sense i'm kind of you know trying to do that in within the book as well like like what are the what are these other functions and purposes that racist humor in the past and in the present has served um in a way that also show the limits of what whiteness and white supremacy are um and how and how racist humor um is kind of wielded in this effort to try to say hey white folks we're all on the same team mm -hmm. right but but by ignoring these other sort of uh, social inequalities like class inequalities, right? So so a figure like Trump was very good at saying, you know, hey, white folks, we're on the same team, we're under attack. And of course, here's a billionaire trying to solicit, you know, votes, you know, from you know working class, you know, rural, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, white Americans all over the country who would actually benefit from the redistribution of wealth. From high taxation on the rich, you know, from public policies uh, and public investment, you know, that would give them healthcare, that would give them, you know, uh, other kinds of resources to survive in a society of stark inequality. And so, for me, it's like, well, you know, how do how do jokes fit into that? You know, mm -hmm. how did how, how do jokes fit into that? And and so, part of the argument I'm making is we need to think about humor and how it serves both to create division but also solidarity. Right? How does it bring people together at the same time that it's used? To bring to, to kind of tear people apart, and in in a way of thinking about what it what are the the yeah what are the kind of social psychological implications of humor itself as a phenomenon, and in this case, racist humor you know as a phenomenon in itself as well. So, Raul, this is such a, a rich book, and one of the things you had me thinking about as I was reading it, and in particular bringing up blackface minstrelsy, we know from historians of blackface minstrelsy that it's central to the development of American popular culture, it's central to the development of American humor, and that many of the performers in blackface minstrelsy at the time would not have been read as white, right? They were outside of WASP, um, yeah. Irish Americans, um, yeah. Italian Americans, uh, American Jews, right? Um, and yet, by performing this stereotypical, exaggerated, dehumanizing version of blackness, in some ways they're ingraining themselves into America, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm curious if you can talk more about, I mean, I think that there's a tendency or, or maybe a temptation among some scholars to be like, racist humor is an aberration, it's, it's exceptional. But I think your work is really pointing us to thinking about it's fundamental to the construction and racial formation of whiteness in the United States. Can yeah. you talk about this relationship between whiteness and racist humor? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm not the first to do that here. I'm, I'm really sort of looking to the, the historians who've done some of this really great work. You know, Eric Lott, you know, uh, mm -hmm. David, David Rodiger, Alexander Saxton. I mean, these, these folks, you know, were some of the folks who, who really were carving out this discipline of what, you know, or, or this field of what, what has been called in critical whiteness studies. Um, and, and they were really looking closely at the way that, you know, blackface min minstrelsy as a culture industry, how it sort of was was being used in a way that it was, in a sense, blurring the ethnic, religious, um, class boundaries of of the formation of you know early white American society, right? Like as you mentioned earlier, like yeah, you had you know the Irish, you know Italians, you know Jewish immigrants were not readily seen as all oh, your team white people, you know, mm -hmm. just because you know as soon as you got off of Ellis Island or whatever. Uh, no, they I mean they were they were often concentrated into you know uh, northeast you know urban ghettos. They lived in crowded spaces. They had some of the lowest paying jobs, you know, and but the idea then was that you know. Um, uh, with within some of this literature, uh, you know, folks like Michael Rogan as well, we're beginning to point at the fact that the industry of blackface was was serving on the one hand to confirm this idea that you know that black people that the black race is somehow it's different. It's different than 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 whites. It's different than Europeans. It's different than us, right? Even at the same time that you had these ethnic others, these kind of, or in a sense, off whites, who didn't necessarily fit in readily or you know quickly into the sort of the the the, the white sort of racial construct, but could if they in a sense, um, in a sense, kind of pledge their allegiance to whiteness, right? In a sense, like hey, you know, show that that you're going to be on sort of this side of the racial line and not on this side. So, so this meant then going along with the racial project of sort of white supremacy and, and essentially going along with the rules, going along with the laws, going along with the social and political sort of arrangement and how this is going to uh, play out. And this included going along with the jokes, right? So be in on the jokes, right? Uh, uh, these kinds of jokes. And if you're in on these jokes, then you're kind of, you're, you're showing that, you know, that you're part of this group versus this other group, which is the disenfranchised, the racialized, the people over here who are, who are not fully included in, in the society. Um, and, you know, th th there were moments in early, you know, uh, 20th century, late, you know, uh, 19th century uh, uh, United States, where you would see sometimes an overlap in sort of the, the sort of um, the efforts to challenge this kind of humor and, and, and it being a form of popular culture, right? You had Irish, you know, um, M. Allison Kibler wrote a really great book called The Censoring Racial Ridicule. Um, and she's looking at these campaigns by, you know, Jewish Americans, Irish, uh, Irish, uh, Jewish immigrants, Irish immigrants, and then African-Americans. And in their efforts and these campaigns to what she called censor racial ridicule, which is basically, you know, what we call today, you know, cancel culture or political correctness. You know, uh, these immigrants uh, and, and, and African-American communities, they were trying to sort of essentially, um, you know, challenge the idea that they should be objects of, of racial ridicule. Like, mm -hmm. wait a minute, we don't like being objects of, of of amused racial contempt, we don't be in, we don't like being the objects of your humor, and they would they would engage in protests and boycotts and 
you know, outright theater riots. They would riot in, you know, in, in the theaters to sort of prevent these kind of performances uh, from, from happening. And so in a sense, there was a possibility for sort of creating a more sort of multiracial sort of block or a multiracial formation that said, wait a minute, you know, those of us who are the victims of this racist culture, this racist sort of humor, um, are showing our discontent with it, right? Um, and and in a sense, right, th- th- those histories show that, you know, it wasn't just, you know, African-Americans, it wasn't just Black folks who were who were on the receiving end of this humor. But as you're sort of mentioning, and, and, some, and what the, some of the literature mentions, is that, you know, that kind of solidarity is, is kind of only temporary. Right. Mm -hmm. It's temporary. And then, you know, the the opportunities or the the sort of the quote unquote privileges then that whiteness can offer. Right. By aligning with whiteness versus aligning yourself with, in this case, the racialized, you know, people's uh, down below. um, Well, you're just going to have an easier time fitting into the society. Right. You're going to have an easier time. You're going to have more opportunities if you just go along with the project of white supremacy. If you go along, you know, with with uh, uh, with this racial uh, with this racial construct. If you go along with it, and are you know are okay with being in on the joke, then then guess what? You know, life's going to be better for you. It's good. You know, opportunities are going to open up. You know, your your you know just your quote unquote American dream is going to be fulfilled by being on this side you know, of, of the sort of the racial line versus on, on this side. Um, and so sure enough, the, the, the entertainment industry, you know, uh, within, within uh, uh, the United States, blackface minstrelsy in particular, makes it so that, you know, then the newcomers, right, the Irish, you know, the Jewish, you know, and so forth, they, you know, one of their first sort of entrances into the entertainment industry is by donning on blackface and mm-hmm. saying, "Hey, we're going to put on the blackface makeup too. We're going to ridicule these groups as well." Um, you know, and that problem is not just you know solely for you know these white immigrant groups who are trying to sort of show that they're white, but even for black entertainers, right? Like for, for them to exist in the industry of blackface, they also have to conform to those norms. So it's not just white entertainment entertainers who are putting on the blackface and ridiculing blackness. Blackface, the black blackface entertainers have to do that too. Otherwise they can't perform within the genre. Otherwise they're not given opportunity or platform to do so. And you know, and of course within there, I mean, it's, it's not kind of all sort of one-sided. Within there, you're gonna have, especially in the case of black face, black blackface entertainers, they're gonna try to sneak in some subversive jokes and commentary that, that might go over the heads of the white audience members, you know, especially once these once these theaters allow, you know, black, you know, uh, black audience members to be within, you know, the, the theaters themselves. So that there is, even within blackface, a kind of this subversive potential, this kind of this the satirical sort of tropes within it that the entertainers themselves are trying to create space to say, hey, we're not fully happy with this either. We're in here because this is how we can sort of be a part of this 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 entertainment industry, but here's some jokes to kind of show you that you know we're not fully on board with what's happening here. So there is that subversive potential, but again, part of the argument I'm making is that we tend to sort of overemphasize that subversive potential and say, ah, look at see, ultimately humor is this subversive potential social force, and we should really focus on that. Let's focus on the subversive potential of humor, not on this sort of the way that it serves the interests of sort of domination. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying like, no, we got to look at both. 
And in fact, we I think we got to pay more attention to the domination side of it because we've overemphasized the sort of the subversive or the rebellious potential of it. And so in, in this spirit, you offer us this concept of amused racial contempt, right? And I believe you're riffing on Du Bois's amused contempt, right? Can you talk yeah. about what Du Bois means with amused contempt and what does Perez mean by amused racial contempt? <laughs> Yeah, so so like I said earlier, uh, so the title of the, of the book is 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 really riffing on uh, Du Bois's essay, "The Souls of White Folk," but in in developing my theory, um, I'm also really engaging with with Du Bois's uh, notion of double consciousness and and mm-hmm. you know his work on the souls of black folk, and you know when I was revisiting Du Bois's you know writings, uh, in in trying to think theoretically about you know how to how to, how to explain what I'm looking at. You know, I reread this, the passage, right? The famous passage that has been quoted, you know, endless times by, 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 by scholars who have been looking at Du Bois's work and, and, and how does it, you know, uh, give us some tools to understand the kind of the, the, the experience of being, you know, black, you know, or, or other scholars of color have, have also drawn on Du Bois to think about the experience of being a person of color in a white dominates dominated society, and of course, Du Bois, you know, uh, has the, has this 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 concept that he calls double consciousness. And in there, as he's explaining double consciousness, he says it's it's all it's the sense of always looking at yourself through the eyes of others, right? Uh, the eyes of others, meaning white society in particular, mm-hmm. of measuring your soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. And so that phrase there, amused contempt, is is one that I really sort of just kind of latched onto in particular because of course you know what is a Du Bois what is he referring to when he's referring to amused contempt so he's writing this in the early 1900s and of course he's referring to the everyday racist humor that exists in you know in the United States during this period um, from blackface minstrelsy all the way down to just kind of the everyday sort of you know um you know, sort of paraphernalia and objects of racist humor and racist fun, right? All these sort of blackface iconography that was just pervasive, right? It's it's in your children's literature, it's it's in your you know sort of you know uh, child you know childhood rhymes. It's in you know the, the cartoons. It's in so it's pervasive, right? And so for Du Bois, amused contempt, um, right, is is sort of I think of it is a phrase that he's using to think about the way that racist humor, right? Racist fun is a way in which white society, sort of white racial and colonial imagination, how it sort of views, you know, a, a racial, racialized body, right? It says amused contempt and pity, right? Um, you know, the pity the aspect of it would be, you know, perhaps a more, you know, liberal, you know, society that says, you know, all these poor folks, you know, you know, they're so, you know, it's terrible what's happening to them, but, you know, what, what can we do, you know? Um, but this idea of amused contempt, connecting it to, uh, you know, here to a theory of humor um, is one that, that, that really stuck out to me because thinking through what amused contempt is, right, I, I immediately started to connect it to the humor literature that I was already familiar with, right? So this idea of, of amused contempt really connects to, you know, what, what humor scholars more recently have called, you know, the superiority theory of, of humor, right? This, mm-hmm. this, this finding joy, uh, you know, in the, in the pain or misery of others, right? You know, you know, Germans have a 
specific term for this, right? They call it schadenfreude, right? Um, and so there I was like, okay, there's something here then. There's something here where I can connect Du Bois's notion here of amused contempt, connect that to the humor literature, and then I could connect that to the to the race literature because the race literature, obviously examining racism and white supremacy, that's connected to this ideology of racial superiority and inferiority. So, so I kind of, you know, I, I move in that direction and then part of develop of trying to develop the theory, then I'm, I'm making the argument, I'm making the case that amused racial contempt then is central to the social and political construction of, ra of, of racism, you know, and white supremacy in a country like the United States, right? Amused racial contempt is connected to the structural foundations of white supremacy, right? The, mm -hmm. the structural and systemic uh, foundation of white supremacy in the political arena, in the economic arena, in the social arena. Um, and then I can see then, and the argument that I'm making is then that the culture that emerges in a society of structural racism is gonna be a culture that reflects that foundation, right? And of course then, uh, for me then, there it's easy to make the case that, you know, blackface minstrelsy, what it really is, it's a culture where you see amused racial contempt in action. It's a culture that's reflecting the plantation economy, right? The you know the, the you know Jim Crow segregation. It's a culture that's reflecting the 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 structural sort of uh, uh, ways in which the society has reinforced uh, a racial order. Mm. Yeah, and, and this connects to um, I mean your book really resonates, and and several passages in it, to be honest, have haunted me, and I'm still kind of wrestling with them. And one of them is uh, you say pretty early on. Uh, racism is more than hatred. It is also a practice deeply rooted in pleasurable solidarity, grounded in an amused contempt for racialized others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if someone were to do a Google image search of racists, right, yeah. they probably would see white people yelling at black school children going into a recently desegregated school or recently yeah. integrated school. Um, yeah. They would see, you know, the the young men at Charlottesville with torches, yeah. Yeah. right? We we have this image of racism as anger. Yeah. But I think what your study points to is the pleasure yeah. of racism, yeah. the, you know, the, the community that it can yeah. build. Um, yeah. And, you know, you were also mentioning humor theory, right? I'm thinking of, of Henri Bergson, right? And, and Bergson is, is theorizing mm -hmm. humor in a social way. And he says, you know, I'm making fun of you, Raul, because I want to bring you back into the fold. I want you to correct yeah. your your behavior. Yeah. And you're kind of saying that's not what's happening. Like sometimes you're making fun of Raul to keep him out. Right. Yeah. And this kind yeah. of dialectic of the pro-social and the anti-social that's always yeah. present in, in, in humor at the social level. Yeah. Um, can you talk more yeah. about pleasure and about this yeah. kind of um, this tension between pro-social and anti-social that's endemic to uh, comedy in a society or in a racist society in particular? Right. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, I mean, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is, it is. But I think, I think you're, you're, you're really, I think, hitting the nail on the head there. Um, I mean, what is humor, right? I mean, that's that's the other thing that I'm trying to kind of lay out in the in the book in some way is is really having us think more deeply about what humor is to begin with, right? Like, what is it as as a phenomenon, right? And and for me, humor is is a mode of communication, right? It's it's a mode of communication. It's about communicating right uh, ideas you know reaching out to others and trying to interact with others but in a way that's in a sense a little a little bit distinct than say just ordinary language 
right? Ordinary language, you're giving information, you're sharing information, and you know what you know what folks in communication studies would call you know encoding and decoding, right? You're sending a message, you're receiving the message, and their communication's happening. Um, and understanding is happening if the message is decoded the way you want it to be decoded. Well, humor is a way of communication, but it's not just about encoding and decoding, because it's a form of communication that is that is embedded in giving pleasure, right? You're trying to make other people happy, right? You're trying to make people laugh. So you're, you're engaging in a mode of communication where you're also trying to engage in pro-social behavior, social bonding, social cohesion, right? You're, 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 trying, you're trying to do that. You're trying to bring people together. Um, and of course, you know, humans aren't the only ones, who, the only mammals who engage in kind of pro-social behavior, right? I mean, people that study primates are like, look at, you know, so why, why, do, why do ape communities, you know, sit in circles and, you know, and, and, and pick their fleas off of each other? And, you know, <laughs> you know, they're engaging in pro-social behavior, right? They're engaging in the pleasurable activity of, you know, scratching each other and grooming each other. Um, and so what some of the humor scholars have, have, have argued, especially those that are trying to look at, you know, the sort of the, 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 the sort of evolutionary biological function of humor, what they argue is that humor, in a sense, is grooming at a distance, right? You're, you're sort of give, you're, you're using language to sort of groom others. You're giving language to give pleasure. You're trying to create sort of solidarity. You're trying to create create in group, right? But of course, part of that in group dynamic is also about who is in the group and then who's not in the group, right? Mm -hmm. So when the jokes are being told at the expense of of this person over here or this group over here, then you're creating sort of a boundary. And you're simultaneously saying, hey, we're enjoying a pleasure here, but the pleasure is at the expense of this group, at this individual. So you create a boundary there. You're creating a sort of us and, and them. And and in that sense, then what what racist uh, humor is is uh, is doing is it's creating an in group and out group, right? It's creating a pleasurable sort of event, right? We're sharing a joke. We're sharing a joke about this other group that we find pleasure in. So it confirms our shared experience in this moment. And of course, if the, if if you have a society where the culture and the humor and the and the way the humor is connected to that culture it's constant and it's going on for decades and generations and genres then that humor is creating an in-group right and so like you were saying earlier right the, the ways in which blackface minstrelsy then would then include in the performances these other you know uh, uh you know, immigrant groups who were not really a part of white society or whiteness you know, this was a way that they could become part of the in-group. Mm. You're sharing in the joke. You're sharing in the pleasure. And that pleasure then, the pleasure, it's a racial pleasure at the expense of this other group right. that we find joy in. We find joy. We find laughter. And it's creating group solidarity. It's creating group cohesion at the same time that it's creating alienation between the group or object who's being uh, ridiculed um, uh, against, right? Right. And so in that sense, right, like I'm, I'm, I'm making the case and making the argument then that, that racism, one of the ways that it can be animated in the society, and one of the ways that it has been animated in the society, in a society like the United States, you know, for centuries, is through racist fun, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the argument that I'm making here, too, is that racism, it's not, you know, racism is connected to emotions, right? And so, so I'm not trying to downplay that. I think 
sociologists uh, more recently are, are more willing to pay attention to emotions and how emotions and racism uh, uh, operate, um, you know, uh, in a discipline that has been really been invested in trying to understand racism as structural, racist, racism as institutional, racism as these kind of larger structural and systemic forces, right? Mm-hmm. And here I'm saying, yes, that's happening, but we can't ignore the human dimensions of how racism operates, right? Like, like how do human beings produce racism, right? And then once we sort of acknowledge that, like you're saying earlier, absolutely, then there's the tendency is like, oh, if racism is bad, it must be animated purely by bad emotions, right? By bad behaviors, by bad attitudes and so forth. So yes, you get those sort of screaming in your face, racist and like, you know, angry and that racism is motivated by anger and hatred and these kinds of things. And here I'm saying it's like, well, well, obviously that's one of the ways in which it is, but it's not the only way in which it is. And again, we do ourselves a disservice of understanding what racism is when we're only focusing on the anger aspect of it, um, or if we only focus on the institutional and structural ways that it happens. And here mm-hmm. I'm saying, no, no, emotions are important, but not just the emotions that we think are the only ones playing a role here. Racism is fun. Racism can be fun. Racism is funny, right? And so, and that's a way in which, again, uh, we can see it very clearly in a historical context when we begin to see, well, what was blackface minstrelsy? It was racist fun that was happening. Um, and then, of course, the challenge is looking at that in the contemporary context. How do we see it in the contemporary context? And kind of that's what I try to do in the book. You know, like I said, I'm showing these different illustrations and cases of look at racist fun is here in this context. It's also fun in this context. It's also fun in, in this context. Um, and yeah, like I'm, I'm trying to get us to think then beyond this this idea that humor is only good and racism is bad, but it's only bad in this very narrow sense. And I'm saying like, no, well, racism can be bad and racism can also be fun. And we need to look at that together mm. because racist fun is a problem. And you know, when we don't look at it closely and we pretend that racism can't be fun, then we're left with this kind of celebratory sunny side sort of idea that you know jokes are mightier than swords or jokes you know you know can take down tyrants or jokes are this democratic force and i'm like wait a minute you know it, it, it it's it's doing more than that right and 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 i think we, we need to we need to you know have a deeper conversation about how how uh, you know how how humor can be wielded and continues to be wielded uh, in forms of of domination as well I mean, what you're saying there points to the hypocrisy of how we talk about humor in popular culture and how we talk about in academia, right? Because on the one hand, humor is a tool of resistance. It it can liberate. It it is powerful, right? I'm thinking of Mel Brooks saying when he did The Producers that the only way to go after Hitler is through rhetoric and ridicule, and he chose ridicule, right? At the same time, they're just jokes, yeah. It's, it's just, we're just kidding, right? Yeah. Like yeah. we're talking out both sides of our mouths often, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. I think your your study is pointing to so much of the justification for humor studies in the academy has been, it's punching up. And you're like, yeah, yeah but if it punches up, it can also punch down. Yeah. So can you, yeah. can you talk a little bit, um, especially with this idea of humor as, you know, joking around, just kidding. You, you, you kind of engage quite strongly with Christy Davies' work 
yeah. and um, and offer a, a powerful corrective. Can you yeah. um, give us a sense of your intervention into sociological conversations about humor? Yeah. So, so, uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I, I was very much influenced by by uh, some of the British sociologists who were looking at humor. You know, Simon Weaver, Mike, Michael Billig, in particular. Uh, but then there was another British scholar that I noticed who was uh, uh, extremely influential in the in the in the scholarship on not only humor studies but in, in particular on this this particular form of, of of branch within humor studies, which is called ethnic humor studies. And Davies's work, I mean, it's as a sociological sort of, you know, project on, on humor. I mean, it's pretty expansive. I mean, and it's pretty ambitious. He, he started to study humor around the world, ethnic humor around the world. Um, and, and he began to sort of compare, uh, you know, uh, the way that ethnic humor operates in different countries around the world to try to make a theoretical argument for why ethnic humor exists what it does, and, and the patterns, right? I mean, this is the other thing that sociologists are trying to always do, you know, to legitimize ourselves as social scientists is like, hey, what's the pattern you're, you're, you're mm -hmm. sort of discovering here? And um, and, and so Davies is saying, look at, if you look at uh, ethnic humor around the world, there's these patterns where, you know, the, the sort of in-group or the, the ethnic group that is using humor against this other ethnic group, often it's a neighboring ethnic group, they, they use it in these ways where they're kind of, you know, trying to carve out their own identity by sort of mocking this neighboring group, right? And it, it's the neighboring group that has all the negative sort of qualities, right? It's the neighbors who are cowardly. It's the neighbors who are stupid. It's the neighbors who are irrational. And we, the people at the center, we're the ones who don't have those qualities, right? So he calls it this the center edge model of, of ethnic humor that those at the center, right, the in-group, they use humor against those at the edge as a way to sort of uh, delineate their own sort of in-group identity and mm. show how they're, how they're different from the neighbor, right? So it's the neighbor who's dumb, it's the neighbor who's stupid or cowardly. And he says the most common forms of humor are the humor that look at the neighbor um, uh, as, as, as stupid, right? Like the, the dumb, you know, XYZ ethnic group, right? Uh, and jokes. And there's a bunch of those jokes. And he says, these are some of the most common jokes around the world, um, which is really interesting to make that observation, right? Because he's saying, look, if humor here is being used in a way that, as, as I'm saying here, creates in-group and out-group, creates solidarity, potentially creates alienation. But he's saying, no, 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 let's not, let's not get it mixed up here. He says, what's happening in this group in this in this uh, sort of group dynamic of humor is on the one hand ethnic identities are being sort of carved out but he says in a free in a, in a in a in a fun and friendly teasing way right this is about sort of just showing identity group identities but it's always a form of entertainment like don't get uh, too seriously invested in what's happening here jokes are just jokes at the end of the day jokes are inconsequential for other kinds of social phenomenon, other kinds of social issues, other kinds of social inequalities and problems. And he was especially critical of, you know, what he called the humor as aggression thesis, humor mm -hmm. as inequality, humor as somehow connected to power. And so he has, in a sense, went the other way. He said, humor, at the end of the day, they're just jokes. So it's like he, he builds this kind of, this, this encyclopedic sort of, you know, uh, understanding of humor to at the end of the day say, they're just jokes. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, 
seems like a wasted time. <laughs> like, yeah, well, you know, why'd you study it if you're just yeah. going to say it doesn't matter or it's yeah. innocuous, right? Yeah, absolutely, right. <laughs> and and for me, then, like trying to understand why Davies is approaching humor from this way, then I was like, okay, why would somebody invest themselves in this idea that that jokes are not? Sorry, I'm gonna close the window because the garbage truck is right outside. Too. <laughs> Uh, why why is humor um uh uh why is he making this argument about sort of the inconsequential nature of humor and especially the inconsequential nature of 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 ethnic humor and, and part of what i begin to sort of look at is you know within the uh sociology literature more broadly um and then within the sort of the larger social and cultural arena of the way racism has is being talked about after the civil rights movement in particular, um, is this way of sort of trying to downplay that racism is still a problem, mm -hmm. right? Within a few decades after the civil rights movement, there's an effort to say, again, a celebratory effort, like, hey, we conquered racism. Racism is over, we defeated racism, racism is now you know, ancient history, and you know, we're changing laws, you know, we're trying to include people of color in these spaces. So, you know, racism is is no longer a real problem. So let's really stop talking about racism. We can still talk about identity, but let's talk about identity in a way where we don't have to center racism as part of the conversation anymore. And so you begin to see the growth of what's called, you know, uh, you know, the, within sociology and within the, the discipline of sociology of the study of ethnicity, right? Of, of ethnic identity, and let's take it seriously. Let's let's look at it, but not as a way that contributes to racism and the reproduction of racism uh, any longer. And of course, this is going counter to what the critical race theories, uh, uh, the critical race theorists, are arguing after mm -hmm. the civil rights era. They're saying, no, no, wait a minute. Just because we had a civil rights movement doesn't mean it's like, hey, we've kind of you know turned a corner here. Racism is still very much a part of. Our social institutions. Let's look at the law, right? And they're looking at the law very closely. Let's look at the law. Let's look at policing. Let's look at these other ways in which racism is still very much a part of our society. Um, but we're sort of, we're ignoring it. We're, we're choosing not to focus on it because we want to focus on the more positive outcomes, right? We defeated racism. It's over. Let's move beyond it. And of course, it becomes these sort of conservatives in particular who begin to sort of really champion this perspective because they're like, we don't want to talk about racism anymore. It's over, done over. Let's move ahead. And, you know, uh, let's down, you know, let's ignore the fact that people are saying that it's it's still an issue we, we should be keeping in mind. And of course, what I begin to notice within Davis's, Christy Davis's uh, research and, and, and theories is that he's very much making that same argument, right? Mm. He's making that argument that really lends itself to a sort of to the conservative point of view on the issue of racism and racial inequality. And you know, as he's sort of uh, developing the argument and has, as he's aging as a scholar himself, I see that emphasis coming out more and more in his own takes on humor, right? Mm. He, he's really sort of challenging this idea that racism is a real issue to the point where he's sort of mocking that idea in some of his books and some of his writings, he's saying, you know, it's really only the ultra liberals and the, you know, and once you see somebody talking about ultra liberals, they're kind of revealing their hand there. Like they're telling you what they think about this particular group, right? So, so, so he's kind of mocking the idea that racism is something that we should take a, a look at more closely. And he's mocking those people who are making an effort to do that, right? 
And at that point, he's becoming the most celebrated, the most influential scholar on humor, right? He's he's producing these sort of you know the the these uh, these projects with an enormous amount of data, so he in a sense he wields a lot of influence in the discipline. He wields a lot of influence in what becomes ethnic humor studies. Who he wields a lot of influence in this idea that we just need to look at humor as a positive social thing, as a good thing, as a fun thing. That's what we should emphasize rather than what these critical race theorists and these other folks are talking about, how you know, you know, racism is still a problem, racist humor is still a problem. He's basically saying they're nuts. Like they're, you know, they're they don't know what they're talking about. So in a sense, you know, I think that's what was the motivation, in a sense, by Davies to produce such uh, projects with with enormous amounts of data so that he he could make the claim and say, look it, I'm really the authority here. So if I'm saying humor is inconsequential and I'm the leading scholar in this field, then my take on it, it's not an opinion, right? It's, it's not an opinion that is invested in my own sort of conservative worldview. Uh, it's, it's the way it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the, the, the nascent discipline of humor studies here in the 1980s, 90s, and into the early 2000s kind of goes with that and says, okay, well, Davy seems to be the sort of leading light here, and this is the take, and okay, you know, so people kind of go along with it, right? And, you know, as happens in most other disciplines, it's not until, you know, folks of color or folks with a more critical worldview enter these spaces and these conversations, it's when they say, wait a minute, like, this kind of, kind of bullshit over here, this doesn't kind of explain what I'm looking at, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's more what it's doing, it's, it's revealing the scholar or the social scientist or the the people doing the interpretation it's more of a, it's it's revealing their worldview it's it, but what they're trying to hide as in this case social science right um and and so anyways that, that's kind of what i was trying to do with 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 some of that here in the book and in, in, in really looking at davies i mean if, and of course davies isn't the only one but but he's he was the leading scholar in the field and so he carried a lot of weight in, in sort of channeling the discipline in a particular way. Um, and here, what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm saying like, no, no, we need to we need to look sort of beyond the way that sort of Davies has kind of framed the sort of the, the issue, framed the discipline. And I'm saying we need to look more closely because, you know, not just because racist humor is, is happening in everyday society, but because in many cases it's used with serious social consequences, right? Especially when we're looking at the way it's being used in particular institutions like law enforcement. And how does that contribute to the way police officers then end up policing the people who they use violence against mm-hmm. um, in, in the everyday? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of your earlier work um, on like Don Rickles and Lisa Lampanelli, where mm-hmm. in studying racist humor, you go after the folks who use it, but claim I'm doing it just for fun. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. You know that we're just having fun. This, I'm, I'm an I'm an equal opportunity offender. This is the yeah. term that gets marshaled, um, which yeah. means I can use these jokes, but I'm they're they're somehow operating outside of context, which we know is not true. But in your study here, what I thought was really um, interesting was you turned away from media uh, media and entertainment as the way to kind of unpack this, and you uh, focus on the extreme right. You focus on police. You focus on politics. You you don't turn away from media. There's a lot of media in your book. I, I want to say you turn away from, say, stand-up comedy, where you've done some yeah. of your earlier work in sketch comedy, thinking about Bill Dana and Jose yeah. Um yeah. 
you've talked about this a bit earlier, but I'm going to ask you to come back to it now as we've sure, kind of yeah. gotten really into your book. Um, can you talk about turning to non-entertainment spaces um, yeah. and how this was important for studying and underscoring the importance of racist humor? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, in the book, I kind of, I think I make make uh, the case for why I'm doing that. You know, and I want to be clear that I'm not de-emphasizing these other spaces sure. as like somehow not serious or not important. We shouldn't take a look at those. I think we we still need to take a look at those closely. Um, I guess what I was trying to do in the book here is to signal these other contexts that we're hearing about constantly, right? Like we're we keep hearing about police violence, right? We keep hearing about mass incarceration. We keep hearing about the, you know, the, the far right. We keep hearing about the way the far right, you know, is increasingly using violence, right? You know, I mean, these mass shootings that continue to happen, for instance, a lot of that oftentimes has direct connections or these shooters, especially these young shooters, have connections or have been informed, their worldview has been informed by, you know, the, the way that the far right has essentially used the internet to to sort of to uh, uh, to disseminate their their ideology and worldview, uh, which is often done through humor, through cartoons, through memes, through jokes, right? Um, and then also how this operates in the context of politics, right? So I was writing this book, uh, in particular, uh, you know, while while Trump was still um, um, uh, in office, and 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 so what what did that mean? And so I guess I was here also trying to say, in a sense, where you know I think every scholar is always like, hey, pay attention to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm doing stuff that is socially relevant. I'm so I'm I'm in a sense trying to be a part of these conversations and say, look at humor studies has something to contribute to how we think about, you know, the far right. Humor studies has something to contribute about how we think about police violence and police abuse. Humor has something to contribute to how and why white nationalism is becoming mainstream in political discourse. Um, and so in a sense, that, that meant that I had to kind of, in a sense, move a little bit away from centering entertainment and comedy in and of itself, even though had I not done that work earlier, I don't think I would have had the, the mm -hmm. sort of the, the framework and the understanding to tackle these other spaces that I'm looking at today. So in a sense, this other work, looking at comedy, looking at the history of blackface, looking at how this operates in the realm of standard comedy, you know, since then, um, was really foundational for me to, to taking humor seriously within the context of entertainment and humor in itself, and then using that foundation to say, okay, I think I have a solid grasp for how it operates in the realm of entertainment. Can, can I translate some of those observations now to context beyond an entertainment, which might look a little bit differently, but there's, there's a connection here. There's a relationship between the racist humor in the culture industry and how it operates and the everyday racist humor that operates in these spaces as well. So I was trying to make that connection, you know, best as I could, you know, given the circumstances. Um, and, and, and I'm hoping some of that comes through in, in the project. I think it certainly does. Um, in the conclusion, you start to talk about decolonizing humor. Um, can you can you talk more about that? I, I was particularly struck as a as an object lesson, I guess, in the last week. The the death of Queen Elizabeth II really prompted a lot of humor from um, citizens of Commonwealth nations, formerly colonized subjects, 
I mean, we saw on the one hand, this politics of respectability being wielded, right? This respect the dead. Um, And on the other hand, we see this sense of like humor being kind of a, a catharsis to deal with the weight of colonization and how it has um, effects on the daily lives of millions of people around the world still, uh, to the point that a professor at Carnegie Mellon, um, you know, uh, a a black woman found herself under attack by Jeff Bezos for basically saying, I have no pity for her death. Um, So I'm, I'm talking too much. I'm I'm curious your thoughts about humor and, and decolonizing humor in particular, right? No, I mean, I I think you really make make that connection really 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 well there, Pete. Uh, absolutely, I think you're, we're seeing the limits of the discourse of humor as this kind of progressive liberal kind of you know force, right? Within liberal society, right? So when so when humor is wielded in a pr- progressive liberal force against authoritarian regimes, mm. you know, against, you know, uh, racialized peoples and religions around the world. The idea is like, hey, you all can't take a joke. And if your society can't take a joke, there's something wrong with your society. You should be more like us. And I think you're absolutely right that right now in real time, when peoples are inverting that, when people are trying to use that, you know, you know, uh, jokes as, you know, mightier than swords, jokes as punching up, but they use it against white liberal society. It's like, hey, like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. It's too soon. Show some respect. You know, what's wrong with you? To the point where it's like, I mean, I think I I, I, I didn't uh, read this uh, recently, uh, a day or two ago. Uh, Wasn't it, I think it was in Edinburgh, where somebody, you know, uh, was, was kind of making a joke or mocking the sort of uh, the death of the queen there uh, and was arrested wow. for that. Yeah. So, so, you know, so you're seeing kind of those limits in real time, the idea of, you know, uh, this, this idea of humor, the sense of humor, this kind of, this idea that comes about from, from, you know, from Western liberal society that's exported around the world through colonialism. And then now where the descendants within those colonies try to wield that back to the monarch to the empire to the descendants of the you know of the of the of the empire it's like what are you doing like mm-hmm. you're not you're not supposed to do that that's not funny that's t- that's tasteless that's offensive that's right so all the ways then that it's kind of turning on its head right i mean it's pretty much the same thing that was happening as i mentioned at the beginning with the sort of muslim cartoons that were being wielded against you know Arabs and Muslims during the context of the invasion of Iraq, right? We're gonna ridicule you, right? We're gonna ridicule you, and you're supposed to think it's funny. Mm-hmm. Even, even as your cities are burning, even as your cities are being bombed, even as your people have to leave, you know, uh uh your you know your 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 homeland behind, you're still supposed to think that this is funny. And if you can't, then it shows the limits of your illiberal society, right? Mm-hmm. And here, I mean, I mean, this is happening. I mean, it's really happening on the internet, right? For the most part, it's happening, you know, in the Twitter sphere and these kinds of places. But it's in a sense, the Twitter sphere has been seen as this kind of the you know, the global public square. In a sense, it's kind of you know, it's it's embarrassing, right? It's 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 seen as tasteless. It's embarrassing the royal family. It's you know, it, and that's being coupled with critiques of colonialism, critiques of white supremacy, anti-colonial critiques. So in a sense, we're seeing this 
kind of decolonial humor in real time in a way that was not intended to be used, right? And so here where I'm saying, you know, decolonizing the sense of humor, part of what I'm saying is we need to revisit and take a close look at the kind of the, the, the constructs that we have about the sense of humor to begin with and how these constructs that they're just jokes or that, you know, humor is this kind of progressive force only for good are constructs that emerge out of a colonial mentality, out of a colonial worldview, right? They emerge as tools to reinforce and justify white supremacy, to justify empire, to justify that non-European societies, you know, the way you show that they're illiberal is when they can't be joked about, right? Mm. When, when these people can't be joked about and they respond in an aggressive way, there it is. It shows you how backward these people are, right? But then when you invert it and you use it here against, you know, in this case, I think it was Tucker Carlson who was referring to, you know, the British Empire, you know, as, you know, th th this is, this you know, the birthplace of freedom of speech, you know, the bedrock for, you know, for modern Western civilization. No empire ever did it better. You're seeing all these kind of glowing tributes, you know, to monarchy right now, which is, you know, very funny coming from Fox News in particular. But this idea, right, that, hey, show some respect, people. Like, you know, we, you know, we haven't even buried, you know, the, the, the queen. And here's mm -hmm. all this, you know, this humor coming this way. So here, I guess, in, in the idea of, you know, the, this this idea of decolonizing the sense of humor, right? This idea of decolonization has been in the air in academic circles and literature for a while now. It's making its way, I think, into pop, into popular discourse to the point where it's the, the notion itself is also being critiqued. The notion itself is also being ridiculed, not just by those on the right, but those on the left are also sort of critiquing the idea uh, and the limits of, of decolonization. And here, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, I guess, you know, tongue in cheek, I'm bringing that discourse into here, into saying you know, this idea of decolonizing the sense of humor. And it's something, I mean, to be honest, that I have to also think much more deeply about. Here it was like I needed to kind of wrap up the book and think about how to, how to end it. And of course, try to end it in a, you know, in, in a sense that, you know, trying to give directions for future work, you know, for myself and others and thinking about, on the one hand, I don't want to downplay the idea that humor can be used to challenge power. Obviously, that, that's one of the ways that humor is used. Um, but, but part of what I'm saying is, you know, before we think we should only do that, we also have to look at this other side of humor, right? So I've been asked by a few people already, like, well, why don't you talk about, you know, humor and how it's used against racism and these kinds of things? I'm like, uh, like it has, right? And obviously, <laughs> it, it, it does, right? Yeah. And a lot of people have written about that. And here I'm saying what a lot of people haven't written about is this other side. What's the other side of, of the humor, right? So so I'm I'm not trying to I'm not trying to sell a happy story here, but I'm also not trying to sell, you know, just a story about, you know, uh, of, of depression, right? And I'm not trying to just sell a, like a, a story without any kind of what are what are the rays of you know of of you know hope or possibility, however we want to frame it, in the way that humor can be used um in these other ways. Um and not ignoring these other sort of tendencies of humor to be used to challenge power. But I guess what I'm saying is like, we need to also invert that and see how that operates within Western society to also see the limits of Western society. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really points to this incompleteness in how humor has been studied. Right. Um, there, there's a, an expression within communication and media studies and science and technology studies that technology is neither positive nor negative nor neutral. Right. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. And it reminds us that comedy is a technology. It's a tool. It's something yeah. that we can use. Um, and as much as it's been used, you know, to punch up, it's being used to punch down and still being used to punch down. Yeah. I think that that's really yeah. pointing to um, an important intervention being made in your book. Um, my next question was going to be, where do you see future directions uh, for yeah. racist humor But you and studying it? But you you, you touched on that. So I'm curious what you're working on now. Um, do you, do you, are you continuing in this study or are you moving on to a new project? What's, uh, what's next for your own scholarship? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, for right now in, in the kind of more short-term context, I really do want to kind of, uh, use this kind of framework and, and start to think about it in a more global context. So like the book really is narrowed on the United States. Um, and so how, how, how does, this phenomenon of what I call the muse racial contempt. So how does it work in other contexts, right? How does it work in Latin America? How does it work mm-hmm. in European society you know, and, and globally? Um, and so in doing this, I'm kind of partnering up with, with Simon Weaver. Um, we're, work, we're working on a project together to think about the relationship between, I guess in a way, like the way I'm approaching the study of humor would be in a sense by taking a closer look at affect. Right, so mm. emotions and humor. So how does how does how is humor connected to affect to create solidarity and alienation? And a lot of what Simon has done is he's looking at rhetoric and language and communication. Right. So so how does humor operate? As you said, I think very well earlier, humor is a tool. Right. It's neither good nor bad. It's a, it's a way of communicating. It's a way of sort of engaging. Um, and so I think we're we're going to aim to do that by showing humor as a tool of language and rhetoric. Right, aiming to convince, aiming to draw you in, aiming to sort of create alignment um, and disalignment. But how does humor then work? Not just as a form of rhetoric, but it's a form of affect, right? Mm. So humor, as I, as I mentioned earlier, humor is a form of communication, but it's but it's different than other forms of communication in that it's aiming to give pleasure. It's aiming to sort of to to create a sort of a context for fun and for play, an invitation you know, to create, again, solidarity um, and, and alienation. And so I think we're trying to sort of kind of gel those two uh, 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 perspectives together with an eye on this sort of global phenomenon uh, of, of racism and seeing how, how does racist humor, you know, and how did it contribute to a sort of uh, uh, the, the racial ordering of, of, of the planet, of the world, right? And so revisiting, you know, Blackface, obviously, but also looking at colonial cartooning, right? So what was the power of colonial cartooning, colonial images um, in sort of reinforcing sort of uh, racial hierarchies and worldviews, and then trying to connect that more recently to the way it's kind of being used, uh, racist humor is being used, um, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in in more recent context. Um, And in a sense, it's also a way to maybe try to perhaps maybe write a more sort of introductory sort of uh, framework for these ideas, you know, that people can, you know, can use, um, you know, for, you know, for intro level courses and stuff like that. So try to make it more accessible for, for undergraduates. I mean, that's, that's the kind of idea for the, for that project as well. So th- that's kind of for now, longer term, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure yet, but I, I really am interested in, in pursuing globally you know, how, how this, how this dynamic and phenomenon works as well. Sounds important and exciting and ambitious. And uh, I'm sure we're excited to see what what comes of it. Thank you for your time today, Raul. 
Uh, the book is The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy, available now at Stanford University Press and other online booksellers. This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books and Sociology on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. Bye-bye now.